it went fairly well. So w- what was good is this time there was quite British weather. It was a lot colder. There was hail and snow and I ran quite a lot with Andy Simmons in the night. And I don't know, we were just chatting and pacing it quite well and holding ourselves back a bit. And I remember going past kind of David Laney and Sage Canaday and thinking, this is a bit surreal. This is going quite well. And yeah, getting to Cormier, which is around halfway, and just still feeling good and, and left there feeling feeling sort of boisterous and, and thinking this is all right. And of course, it all gets a bit harder towards the end. But somehow I got into got into 10th place and I was like, oh, my God, like, you know, I'm in 10th place. I never thought this was possible. That, my friend, was Damien Hall. And this is the Inspirational Runners Podcast. Hey everyone, Happy New Year. My name's Robbie Marsh and I'm your host, so welcome to the podcast. We're numerous people waiting to hear, have they been lucky enough to get into Chamonix this year? We have a special guest on the podcast, Damien Hall, who started running in 2011 with a 140 half marathon. That turned into an obsession which resulted in him coming fifth in UTMB in 2018. Podium the Spine Race and the Dragon's Back completed FKTs across some of Britain's most gruesome trails, including the infamous Paddy Buckley, and now graces a 238 marathon. A journalist who's turned into one of Britain's most respected ultra coaches, it was a real joy chatting with Jamian, who shows what can be done with the right level of determination and focus. Before we start, I'd just like to give a quick mention to the sponsors of this episode. We run Wild Northern Ireland. Their next event, which I'm registered for, is the Midnight Trail Marathon. It's such an awesome event that the full marathon distance is already filled, but don't worry. If you're quick enough, you can gain one of the 20 half marathon places that remain. It's on Saturday the 1st of February. It starts at midnight and it's held in Carrickfergus, County Antrim. I'll place a link in the show notes, but you better be quick as this race is selling out fast. I don't want to hold you up any further. It's with great pleasure I bring you... Damien Hall. Thanks for calling in anyway. I really appreciate it. Appreciate your time as well. Um, I've done no prep whatsoever. You'll be glad <laughs> to hear. So, <laughs> such as life. So, we're just going to roll off the cuff. Absolutely. Uh, Although, you, I am slightly put off by that horrible thing behind you, that horrible blue thing. Yeah. it's You're okay. It's my son's room. So, I'm actually going to... Oh, con- okay. I'm going to convert this. I'm actually a Spurs supporter. So, I don't know about you. That's yourself. even worse. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, it is now that we've got their manager, for flip's sakes. <laughs> oh yeah, must be some inter- And aren't you playing? Aren't you playing each other this weekend? Uh, I'm not sure if it is this weekend. Um, I'll I need to confirm that. I think it's quite soon. That could be an interesting household to be in. Yeah. So, what team do you support? The Glorious Gunners. Oh, jeez. <laughs> I don't even know how to continue after that. That was just like a real <laughs> low blow to the gut. That was. Yeah, I I've got more used to saying that with with a, a lot of reluctance and um, embarrassment in in the last year or so. So yeah, as I said, I did no no prep at all. Um, but what I did do last night was watch your Cape Wrath Trail film. Really enjoyed that. Ah. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I mean Matt and Ellie, who who run uh, Summit Fever Media, are just just in, incredible at what they do. Like they did all of that pretty much living out of a car. You know, they were sleeping in the sleeping in the car and editing it on a laptop, and they actually released bits of that each day to the Runners World website as we were doing it and stuff. It was incredible. And they're running around with cameras and drones and they got some incredible scenery. So yeah, they're, they're... and I would like to point out when, when it looks like I'm crying, it was just very, very windy. <laughs> yeah. Honest. But seeing the Cape Wrath, how, what distance was that? I think it was 230 miles. Jeez. And um, <laughs> what, what time of year was that? Cause it was uh, December. 
But actually, um, I mean, we saw it as a winter, a winter challenge, but um, actually the weather was really, really good to us. But I, um, I think, I think it's captured in the film that actually, especially me, I was, I was really quite frightened just before because we had to delay the start by a day because the, there are lots of river crossings and you just have to wade right through. And the, there'd been so much rain that the, um, we went out on the course a little bit to investigate and some of the rivers and, and people who lived up there ahead of us were telling us some of the rivers were like head height and, and higher. And that, that is, um, you know, that's not recommended to cross a river um, <laughs> like that. In fact, anything over waist height, you know, the more we looked into it, anything over waist height has significant risk. And it's, it's two things. I mean, you, you could be, the water could carry you away and smack you into something. But also when you get out of the water, if it's, you know, minus something, which it was in the nights and, and maybe three in the morning or something, you know, you're in a serious issue there of, of hypothermia quite rapidly. So there are at least two, you know, things that might, aspects that might kill you. And I was probably more nervous doing that than, than, anything, than anything else I can think of, to be honest, in terms of outdoor challenges. But we, we took the decision to delay it by a day and that actually make a huge difference because we could see there's some better weather coming in and basically the water, the water washed through pretty quickly. And then we never actually had anything above knee height. Obviously, we had yeah, pretty much wet feet the whole time. But you know, you just take that as a take that as a given. I think. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Then, how did you overcome that? Because in the video, I was watching how you were running across the rivers and then continued on. A lot of the trails, or a lot of the course, actually wasn't on trail at all. It was just through bog sort of ground and long grass and things like that. Like um, that must have been mm. really challenging. I I did a race there um, a few weeks ago called the Rebellion. In okay. Wales, it was a 75 mile race and it was not on trail either, just going through loads of farmlands and mucky grounds. Like my, my feet hurt, like, you know, the last 10 miles, like I was like, Jesus, I'm glad I'm only doing the 75 and not the 130 mile race. And when I was watching you go across the moorland, that's what I was thinking, like, how is your feet able to cope with that? Like, cause it's more pulling action than pushing a lot of the times, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, I think some of it's, a level of experience where you, you hopefully you like we've both done this i've done the spine race twice best on the spine race um and we've both done a lot of you know big distances like that where hopefully you've reached a stage where you you know what socks and shoes might work for you i suppose to an extent but with something like that you're just going to get wet feet i mean i did i'm pretty sure i was wearing like sort of waterproof socks but i still you know they only they're only good for so long and, and water gets in the top of them so I think, yeah, we, we both probably, and I guess your feet get more hardened to it over time, but I suppose, yeah, you just got to put up with an element of it and um, it definitely got uncomfortable. But, you know, when, when you when you stop, those few times we stopped, I, I suppose you do your best to look after your feet. But at the same time, you just you just acknowledge it's going to be going to be tough, I suppose. And in terms of the terrain, it really, like sometimes there was actually really good trails and it could really surprise you how well you could move. And then there'd be, yeah, the slowest terrain that either of us have ever tried to kind of run on or move on. Um, and especially it was in the Torridon region. I think Beth in the film says it's the slowest terrain she's ever moved on. It really was a, a mile an hour. It was it was sort of, we're on the side of a, well, a side of a mountain and it was just huge boulders, but but loads of heather. So you couldn't actually like see where you put your feet. So you but you basically plunk your feet into the heather and there were big rocks under it. Um, and and the frustration was we were constantly looking for a path when there wasn't one. So you're going up and down the mountain on really slow terrain in the dark. Thankfully, it wasn't raining right then. But um, and it just but so much of it's that mental side of getting frustrated. I think once you kind of realize the terrain might be slow at times or you realize, OK, this next five miles might take four or five hours, 
sometimes that just makes it easier once you just accept, mm. um, you know, that it's tough, uh, that what you accept what's coming up. I, I found myself more frustrated than Beth, maybe, because I'm a bit of an optimist. So I'm often like, oh, that'll take a couple of hours. We'll be there by that time. Then we'll go and have a nice snack and something to eat. And then we'll, and then, and then four hours later, you're not there. And that, that would get me a bit, you know, uh, morose and grumpy. Um, whereas Beth, you know, I mean, she's a doctor. She's much more rational and realistic about things. And she was much better at not getting down if, if we hadn't, you know, quite moved at the pace I might have anticipated. Um, so a lot of it's that mental battle. And that's partly why I love the sport. It's all those games we play with ourselves and, and, and that kind of stuff. Was there any situations along that um, route um, where you noticed there was a path about five meters away from you and you've been trekking on the trail? Because that happens to me all the time. You're sitting <laughs> thinking to yourself, there could be a trail like... 20 feet away from me here uh i'm trying to think um but does i'm play not on, sure plays on your mind sometimes doesn't it the, the yes no, that, was, that was exactly it that 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 spell i was just describing the frustration was that uh, what we realized towards the end was just there wasn't a trail there <laughs> but we were looking we were looking for one and there just wasn't we were pretty confident there wasn't one because we were going up and down the side of the mountain and of course that's slowing you up and making everything worse yeah, they, they just, they just, they just wasn't one. So there, there were three or four spells like that where there wasn't a trail. And I suppose once we got used to that idea, you, you're, you're just a lot okay. more okay with it. Whereas, like you say, the frustration when you're looking for the trail, where's the trail? Where's the trail? Where's the trail? You're getting more and more wound up. And part of it is that I think, yeah, being at peace with with what you're doing. But yeah, there were definitely frustrations. What we didn't actually capture, which which wasn't, we didn't mean to overlook it, but we actually got split up at one point. Totally my fault. I just decided Beth was contouring up the side of a mountain. It was in the daylight, uh, but I went around the corner and suddenly realized I couldn't see Beth anymore. After a while, I would shout a few times and I'd use my emergency whistle for the first time in my life. Um, and couldn't, we couldn't hear each other. Um, and then it's the dilemma of do you stay still and let them try and find you? Or, you know, have they stopped or have they gone on? Have they backtracked? Are they looking for you? So you're like, okay, what do you do in this situation? So I guess what I did was... Yeah, tried to get right back on the path where I hoped Beth was. Luckily, she'd gone on a bit but had stopped. But she'd been blowing a whistle too and shouting, and, and she was very forgiving of me. But it was quite a stupid thing to do because that might have put a whole trip in, in jeopardy. That, and that was just my laziness of being a bit fed up and not wanting to climb up a mountain. So, yeah, we, we um, but generally, I did let Beth, she did most of the navigation, and, you know, she's very, very good at it. And, and we worked out soon enough that. It was better if she did the navigation because I'm a bit of a daydreamer and she likes to know, you know, when's the next climb, how high is it, how many miles till here, and I just sort of go into a daydream. So it's probably better if she does the uh, the important job of navigation. So you're going for the fastest known time. Why did you select December? Well, it was um, Ellie Green from Summit Fever Media. It was her idea. We were just dreaming up sort of great winter British adventures i suppose we're, we're all passionate about showcasing britain which can feel surprisingly remote and we just realized we didn't know anyone who had ran the cape Wrath trail in winter some people have hiked it but it, it sounded really demanding a lot of snow can come in as soon as she said it we just all thought wow oh, that 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 would be quite cool so yeah give it a go yeah just like you said there it's very isolated um sort of race there's a real sort of innate sort of sense about it like you're just out miles and miles of sort of terrain with nobody about only stags and sort of deers running about um it looked mm. quite special actually oh it really really was and in, in a way that the shame of doing it in like in winter it's going to be that more quieter but of course there's so much more darkness so 
really, you know, two thirds of the time it was in the darkness. So in a way, you know, we have missed out on it to an extent. But yeah, it felt very remote. And, and I think probably once, once in 24 hours, roughly, we'd come to like a village. And then obviously, if we come to that village in the night, we don't see anyone. Or I think only twice did we manage to stop off once in a pub and once in a cafe, like to use local amenities. And yeah, it felt more and more remote. And it, but that added to the you know, the specialness of it, I think. And you come back really feeling, I think in the, in the film, I used that horrible word sort of feeling cleansed, but that was just what came to me at the time. Um, but it just, it felt really, you know, most of the time our phones didn't have any signal or anything. So you don't, you know, you, you, you stop looking at your phone, which is, which is really nice. Yeah, it was brilliant. I just, yeah, I'd urge people to get out and seek out similar adventures or just go and do the Cape Wrath Trail because it's pretty much our remotest and wildest one we have, I think. Yeah, it makes you very present, I suppose, in the moment when you're doing a race or a run like that anyway, an adventure. Yeah. Like. I think the best bit of the video that I enjoyed was um, the bed and how much it actually meant to you getting an actual, an actual mattress to yourself. Those mattresses, they were just horrendous. Like if you're in a hotel or even staying at a friend's house and they showed you to that mattress, you'd be like, oh my God, I, I can't sleep on that. It looked like it was riddled with every type of, um, you know, <laughs> fleas and in like horrendous but for us it was like one o'clock in the morning we hadn't slept on a mattress for at least two nights we'd traveled like 200 miles it was absolute heaven um, and we were just so excited so happy and we slept yeah we slept maybe five hours or something on those mattresses and 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 were very reluctant to leave um so yeah that was that was absolutely heavenly and um, what time did you get then did you you did record the fastest known time, didn't you, for a pair? Yeah, um, and it was the fastest overall. Do you know what? I can't remember. Was it about two and a half? No, three and a half days. Okay. Uh, I'm rubbish at remembering my... <laughs> I've got a few FKTs. Uh, well, three. I can remember my Paddy Buckley round one, but I can't remember the... I can't remember what it was. I think we beat... So the, the previous FKT, to be totally honest, was held, I think, by pretty much a hiker or a fast packer. And I'd seen... I'd read his blog. And he had taken quite a big pack. So we didn't... You know, we beat it quite comfortably by, I think, two days or, or, or even more. So it wasn't, you know, I, I suppose we, we always thought we had a fairly good chance. But, yeah, but we didn't sleep much. I think that f I think we had three sleeps. And the first time was, oh, was it three hours or less? You know, it, we could have slept a bit more and had a slightly more comfortable time on reflection. Yeah, it was about raising the bar as well and leaving that bar high behind you, I suppose. So you had a you had a great um, yeah. a great introduction into trail running. I thought that was quite an interesting story. I know you've gone over it again and again in podcasts, but it'd be good just to get a little brief introduction because you started running the same time I I did in two thousand eleven. Um, I ran the first half marathon then. I was I think it was one fifty one back then. We've sort of yeah. gone on a similar sort of path. The only difference is. I don't have these firsts or seconds next to the races <laughs> that I've had. Like, so how did that come about? You know, how did you, how did you, just briefly then, how did you sort of get introduced into the world of ultra running? Well, um, I guess it's, it's relevant to uh, give you a bit of background before, I suppose. And, and like, I did play quite a lot of football most of my life, to be honest. I was no good at it, but I was playing it. And maybe I'd run, you know, to stay fit for the football. And then I was really into trekking or long long distance hiking. So I've done lots of the big, big treks of camp and the Inca Trail. And 
um, lots of treks in New Zealand and the wildlife walks, you know, Pennine Way and coast to coast. And I loved those big days out in lumpy places, I suppose, or, or even a, hopefully a week or two weeks out in lumpy places, being self-sufficient and, and camping and, and whatnot. And they have the Bath Half here, which is a huge event. And I was feeling a bit unfit, so I just signed up and, and, and did it and just absolutely loved it. Um, I straight away thought, I've got to do more of this. What, what time did you get in your first half marathon then? Uh, 1.40. Okay. So I, all I had to go for was my brother-in-law had run a half marathon in 1.48. Uh, I thought, well, if I can beat that, sign up for the next year. Um, but by then I'd already signed up for my first marathon, which was the Brighton Marathon, which I ran uh, dressed as a toilet, raising money for water aid. Again, I really enjoyed it. I, you know, I smacked straight into the wall. I made lots of beginner errors. Well, you dressed like a toilet. That was a major beginner. Yes. A major beginner yeah. mistake. <laughs> Yes, near the end, I really needed the toilet because I couldn't find one. I had totally smacked into the wall. I'd never run longer than 17 miles before, so that's exactly where I hit the wall. But yeah, really felt really thrilled with that. And and then I'm a journalist as well, so I was pestering a magazine called Outdoor Fitness. I was pestering the editor to let me write about running, and he said, uh, well, I... I don't want you to write about that, but I'm going to send you on your first ultramarathon. So uh, sometime in that summer, I went and did the uh, the wall. They had a two-day option then. It was so 69 miles over two days. And yeah, I, I loved it more, camaraderie, the aid stations, and, and that sense of achievement at the end. And I straight away thought, I've got to do more of this sort of thing. This is this is for me. This really suits me. I think, you know, it was a bit of, bit of luck in a way that the magazine sent me there. But I, would, I, I feel confident I would have gravitated towards that sort of stuff. It's just, I suppose, finding out about all the races, it's still a bit of a mystery. And, and people who are new to the sport as well kind of say to me, where do I where do I find out which races to do? And it's there's, a, there's not really one website, all the races listed night for you. But I guess it escalated from there. Once you've covered a certain distance, you, you want to see if you can cover a bit more. So the next year I did my first 100K and then my first 100 miler. And because I'd walked the Pennine Way, the spine race was just starting up. It was going to be the third year. And, you know, in a moment of sort of recklessness, I signed up for that as well. So I, yeah, did the spine race as my fifth, fifth ultra marathon. Yeah. So that was, that brings us to 2014. So as I said earlier on, I didn't do much prep, but I printed off your achievements, if you like, from each year. Um, and I highlighted the ones in red that sort of interest me, that are sort of on my bucket list. Now I podcasted Ian uh -huh. Keith last week. Um, oh, Ian obviously <laughs> had knocked 15 hours off the course record before jasmine jumped in um, yes and he came second after jasmine as well just yeah. just after winning utmb oman which was a, an amazing achievement by himself so i got him to break down the the kit for me and afterwards i you know when he finished doing that i said well i'm not going to see you there anyway but it was nice to know thanks <laughs> but since then and i'm it's maybe three or four days actually since i was talking to him um you know that's see i can feel that seed growing and it just happens that you've come along now as well and, I'm, and I'm, you're sitting working out in your head so you've got seven days you've 268 miles um it's treacherous conditions but if you're right, using the right qu uh kit you know it c could be quite possible if you're doing 40 hours or sorry 45 miles a day you could get a reasonable good time um with that yeah. or you could at least finish it um what type of kit were you using going into that well um i mean just to, to continue on what you say about it. I know it sounds hugely daunting, but I think well, coming around to the, the reality of it is that the, it is quite more accessible than it, than it sounds, first of all. And I know a guy who hiked all of it, like in the race, like um, he knew he, 
for whatever reason, he wasn't going to run it. So he practiced hiking, fast hiking in his training, and he hiked the whole thing and got there, you know, inside the cutoffs. So in a way, it's not, it's a race, not so much about how super fit you are. It's more about, I suppose, yeah, equipment is important and, and you definitely don't want to be carrying like the kit list. If I'm totally honest, I think is a bit over the top and they really do make you carry a lot of stuff and they do weigh people down a lot which i think is a bit mean because it slows everyone down means you're out for longer but if you're careful with that and can, i maybe can afford or, or or can blag some some lighter kit and travel you know a little bit quicker yeah it's perfectly it's perfectly possible for a lot of people and, and in a way it is a hiking race to to, to some degree to, for some people in terms of what kit i took it was a few years ago now and um i'm lucky to be sponsored by um innovate now but but at the time it was a combination of, of brands, I suppose. And uh, I, I can't remember exactly, like I think I had an OM, an OM bag was quite was quite useful. And, and I think I had a Berg house waterproof that was pretty good. I definitely wore some Innovate rock lights for some of it. Some of it is, you know, some of it is quite individual, but I guess I would urge people to, I suppose, try and get the lighter kit because they really, yeah, they really try and... Um, I mean, you need a good waterproof jacket, for example. You don't want to be, yeah, you don't want to be some 100-gram waterproof jacket. That needs to be a proper, you're going to wear that the whole time. So that needs to be a, a winter waterproof. Because that, that's, what, that's what makes it so difficult, isn't it? I know it's 268 miles. Like, in the summer, it might be great. Um, but that time of the year, it's in January, isn't it? The first week of January. Um, and because it, and it, it's Britain, it can do anything in a way. Like, I've, I've, listen, I've worked on it twice as well as part of the media team. And some years, it's been really mild. And in fact, at first, I finished it in like one base layer and a windshirt. But earlier on in the race, I'd been wearing like four layers and it had been torrential rain for hours and hours and we were getting soaked. And, you know, I've seen lots of grown men cry on, on the race. It does seem to be more the men more the men who, who um, struggle as opposed to the women. Um and yeah, it's 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 really tough, but the weather could do anything, you know. And I've and I've seen people come from abroad because they see some exciting snowy pictures, and and I've definitely heard of some Americans getting on the course and going, "What?" It's just like warm fog, you know, and <laughs> warm fog and bog is probably the, the, what it's more likely to be. And just you know, being a bit disappointed with that. But yeah, it's a, it's a wonderful adventure, and and of course it hurts at times, and of course everyone's got some. Everyone's heard, you know, horror stories from it, but actually I had some incredible moments. Some of my best friends now I've, I've met at the Spine Race and gone on to have great adventures with them or gone to their weddings or, um, yeah, my, my son's guide parent is, is someone I met on the Spine and so on. So it's it's a really life-affirming adventure and, and it probably is more accessible than, 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 than it sounds. So I would encourage you to, uh, yeah, keep... Uh, Keep watering that seed that's got planted. Yeah. One thing you and Ian have got quite in common, really, is I suppose is that mountaineer and hiking sort of background. Because he had that as well, going into the mm. sport. And it seems to, I don't know what it is like, but it, it, it's, mm. it's a great preparation going into these type of long distance races. Yeah, I, I didn't realize at the time because I thought I was such a novice. Um, but I had all these skills that I hadn't really considered as skills. And, and there were people around me or just ahead of me who were who were crashing out of the race because they just, ultimately, they weren't looking after themselves well enough and they were going too long without fueling or they weren't putting enough layers on. And they're just, I mean, that's stuff that sounds really obvious and, and I don't always get it right, of course, but I guess I was looking after myself well in those respects, you know, stopping to eat, putting an extra layer on, you know, drinking and so on. And I suppose navigation comes into it, but that's been a weakness for me. But I always the best preparation for the spine is 
go and get lost somewhere in the dark, you know, in a in a rain, uh, well, even a rainstorm, and 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 find yourself, you know, find the path from there, like get unlost. And I think that's better, you know, getting familiar with that and comfortable with it mentally. I think that's better preparation than you know running hundred mile weeks, which which may well lead to injury anyway. Uh, or, or tiredness you know you want to be comfortable yeah being out on the hill in in tough weather and know what you're doing I, I think I think that's yeah that so so the race is as much about that as the, as the fitness and the sporty elements yeah. I think when you say looking after yourself I think the, the one comment that Jasmine made that sort of sticks in my mind back from then is you know she made the comment that people weren't eating enough or she was surprised yes. that they weren't eating enough um that really stuck in my head then after her saying that, yeah, and, and well, I was just going to say because Ian Keith has his own sort of unique take on on fueling <laughs> and race. He doesn't eat, but he is um, different. But but then he's yeah, he he kind of is different, and but also he's got years of doing that, so he kind of he knows what he's doing. But definitely, um, I I know one person she would have, would have been referring to, and I you know I don't want to don't sound critical, but yeah, there are, there are one or two people at the front, and one guy who comes back year on year and just never has enough food on him, and you know it's not a coincidence during races as she'll say herself and you know she kept going strongly all the way to the end and, and people who weren't necessarily eating so well didn't um now that's not the only factor but it's an important one i think what about sleep deprivation then how do you sort of manage to go through that yeah that that, that was a bit of a shock <laughs> the first time um i think i'd only done the 100 mile race that I'd, I'd only run through the night once before so the first night i did i did i did sleep for a little bit and um the second night again, I basically the two times I've done the race, I found that the first two nights I struggled to sleep anyway because you're excited about it all, or maybe you've been having a lot of caffeine and sugar. It's all very exciting. Uh, after that, you're shattered, and it's no problem at all to sleep if you don't sort of don't monitor it or don't act on it. You'll end up sort of falling asleep on your feet. And that the first time I did it, that final night, I was in I was in fourth place, and, and I thought maybe I can catch third place, so I didn't sleep at all. And, and that really blew up in my face. And I spent several long hours being quite lost and just wanting to sleep. And, and it was sort of too cold to sleep. And I would sort of lie down on the ground, frozen ground, or sort of curl up. But there was something trying to sleep. But there was something nagging me at the back of my mind, sort of saying, you know, if you if you go to sleep now, maybe you'll just freeze to death and won't wake up. Yeah. Um, so I didn't actually sleep. Um, and then I hallucinated these sort of Chinese lanterns that I followed and they took me off course. So it was all quite exciting. Was there anything bringing you back on course? Well, after a while, it just it got light, I suppose, and the lanterns vanished. And then I was like, no, this isn't right. So the, I guess that tiredness passed. Yeah, when the sun comes up, which is often the case. The second time around, I did try and kind of um, I tried to kind of train for it. I did do some training runs like when I went all the way through the night on purpose to get used to just being tired, I suppose. But you've got to be a little bit careful with that in terms of, you know, just just grinding yourself too much um, overall. You, you want to try and catch up on that sleep afterwards. Yeah, I think it takes a bit of experience. It does seem to get easier the more times you've done it. But it's not it's not a super healthy thing to do too much, I don't think. Is it a self-sufficient race or is it a crude race? Yeah, you're not allowed. You're not allowed a crew now. Back in the day, you could have like a, a crew in a camper van looking out for you, but you're not allowed. But it, it's it's quite tricky so there are five, yeah, there are five main checkpoints where you can get hot meals and sleep. Okay. What's tricky is people, um, the wonderful aspect of the race is there's there's a lovely atmosphere around it and people who live nearby or some of them don't even live nearby, but they just love the challenge of it, how insane it is. And they'll come and sort of try and support people and give them, people leave chocolate bars out or come and hand you drinks. And um, I, my current understanding is the last time I checked, that's kind of allowed as long as it's not arranged, like you're allowed to take a gift off someone 
but as long as you're not meeting them regularly, for example. But that's what's wonderful. There's a farm quite far north where they invite everyone in and give them give them free breakfast and tea and and they do that every year and like they're nothing to do with the race they just want to help people it's there's, there's that wonderful atmosphere around it which is um yeah good good for the soul i think yeah what what is it you think why is it you think ultra running then has that type of sort of wanting to help people and that, like you've talked about the community the people that you've met in the spine race um it seems to be every ultra run that I go in or long distance run, you come home with about half a dozen new friends. Um, I don't remember that in any of the marathons that I ran. Yeah. I think it's got to be something to do with something about the vulnerability and, and, and that makes us all a bit, I don't know, um, more ready to share, more ready to help each other, uh, more open to friendship. Um, but it's, there's definitely something very special about, about the sport. Yeah. What, what do you think was your biggest mistake then in the first time doing that race? Or your biggest lesson? Oh, I mean, yeah, the biggest take home, I suppose, was when I completely skipped sleep on that last night and that wasn't the best tactic, but I had no idea at the time. And then after the race, I probably didn't. Um, well, I tell you what, yeah, so I didn't have breakfast. I had a meal that when I finished and I didn't have breakfast the next day because I had to try and get the train home. And on that train, the buffet, I just thought I'll get some food on the train and there was no buffet car. And so I pretty much didn't eat almost that entire next day. So I kind of wasted away over the next week. I like that, that, that day I needed to eat like three days worth of food, you know, and I kind of wasted away. Um, so that was a good, that was a good lesson. I think it was that sleep power naps could be useful, but have at least had one power nap, maybe at the checkpoint, you know, just 15, 20 minutes. They really do work. They can, they can reinvigorate you for a couple of hours, maybe longer. And I, you know, Jasmine did, did a few pretty sure Ian Keith does them sometimes too. Um, that could be quite a good tactic. So I think it was probably the sleep element. Yeah. What, yeah. Made, what made you go back then the following year? It's just, it's really addictive because you live in this bubble. So you spend three to six months, you know, building up to it. But so much of that build up is, is the psychological thing of having this big, scary thing on the horizon and just thinking about it all the time. And then, and then it happens and, and hopefully it goes well. And then you're probably for another week or so, you're in this almost, you know, bubble of people saying well done whether that's in person or online and then kind of suddenly it's over and it's gone and all i could think of was to sign up again and do all that again even though it hurt but of course the, the we, were, we sort of tend to forget those bits and yeah i just wanted it back i wanted to be part of that and i guess there, there is a special community around that and i wanted to go back and see my friends i suppose i wanted to go back and try and do better got to utmb and that became a that sort of replaced as an obsession but um I think I will go back to the spine at some point um, each year. I when it's on, I definitely am close to signing up. I think it will. Yeah, I think it'll have the next few years. It's um, yeah. There's something about the community and and uh, um, and a great yeah. winter time focus, like isn't it? Yeah, because there isn't much else on at the time, so so it means lots of people are paying attention to it. So um, that's that's really nice. Whether it's people following you online or people coming along to the race, that's a really nice aspect of it. And I love it that it's in Britain. That it's really super challenging race in Britain for me. You know, I, I really like Penarth Way itself as well. It, and I can see how it divides opinion, but um, for me, I, I lived abroad for nearly ten years and and rediscovering my country, I suppose, and and seeing these wonderful things that we that we have on our doorstep. Yeah, it's really grown and been established over the last few years. I think it was two thousand and twelve when it started. There was only eleven people. Um, there's 137 people um, this year, this time round. Yeah, so I've, increasingly people are attracted to the um, yeah to the madness. It'd be interesting to see now after all of the the spotlight that Jasmine brought onto it, because like it really did elevate it to a different sort of level altogether. 
or she did anyway. Yeah, and, and I bet you it'll be fascinating to see. I mean, there'll be some fast guys coming to do it, presumably. Uh, and, you know, I don't think... All right, the, the weather was slightly beneficial for her this, this year, but still, she's, you know, she's beaten me in races. She's an extraordinary athlete. I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if no man beats her record, um, yeah, for, for some time, if, if ever, to be honest. Yeah, I heard that John Kelly is... Well, Ian was saying that John Kelly, who was the last person to complete the Barclay, um, he's actually entered this year, which will be interesting. Yeah, um, yeah, he lives. He lives just over the border from me here. In uh, I live in Wiltshire. He lives in Somerset. We we have met, met up a couple of times since he's been here. Um, so it'll be interesting. I mean, he's obviously very, very good at those sorts of races. Uh, he did pretty well at his first Tour de Gion, uh this year. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what he does. And in Keith's back there, and, and uh, Eugenie Rossello, who's there. Yeah every year um like that was mental last year like he pulled out literally three or four miles from the finish line like you can imagine doing 260 odd miles you've only got three or four miles to go and he had to pull the plug yeah i mean in a way it shows how how hard jasmine had pushed him to you know how hard he worked to try and get close to jasmine um but yeah he knows that race pretty well and comes back here and there's always something eventful um happening with with him um i've i've run a, you know a fair few miles of it with him um he's a charming sort of young guy he doesn't speak much english not that i speak much spanish but yeah it's fascinating to see because he he um well, i think he's finished it twice started it six times maybe and finished it twice so it's always fascinating to watch you know keep an eye on him and he likes to sort of cling to cling to other runners and then sometimes their challenge is trying to shake him off so it's that's part of uh yeah i, I have warned john uh, that that might be if John's putting away, that might be what's happening to him. Um, so that pushed Jasmine. I mean, that's why she took a huge gamble early on. And, and when Eugenie was finally ready to sleep, she was like, she knew that the only way she could get away from him was by not sleeping. So she pushed on again, um, which was a real gamble. And I was watching and, you know, really, uh, well, I was impressed by the bravery of the gamble, but I was thinking, oh, you know, she's not that used to races that long without sleep. How, how did that make you feel? Because some people might know this, like, but you were actually coaching Jasmine during that period. Now, I know she was an absolutely phenomenal um, runner anyway, an athlete. Um, is it the Bob Graham round that she has the phenomenal time? I think it is, isn't it? Um, yeah, well, she's got a women's record on all all three. She did have the <laughs> <laughs> she did have the overall record on the Ramsey in Scotland, but someone a friend of hers beat her by one minute this summer, and she was helping him. You weren't, um, you weren't coaching that person by any chance? No, <laughs> no, no. I was very I was very chuffed when yeah Jasmine approached me last year to coach her for the spine, but. Yeah, and I, obviously uh, it went amazingly well, but I, I really can't take hardly any credit at all. You know, it's 99.9% of her. She was already a phenomenal athlete. I mean, I could give her some kit advice and, um, yeah, I mean, I did, you know, devise her training, but she's just an amazing athlete. Um, she would have done very, very well without my help anyway. Yeah, I'm sure. it was really good having your experience on board, I suppose, after having those two years behind you. Like, Well, hopefully, yeah, and I've, I've got another three clients doing it doing it this year, so well, um, I'm going to be glued to the... Go to the trackers, hoping they do well. Um, and it's, um, yeah, I mean, but even if I didn't, it's it, I I do love, yeah, it's a brilliant race to follow, isn't it? Because there's not much else going on in that first week of January. We're, we've probably all got the Christmas, Christmas blues a bit. And then you've got this incredibly exciting, these dots that actually move incredibly slowly, but and somehow are still so compelling. I remember the year before, I think it was, I had a friend doing it and I was following up in the, he was up in the Cheviots. I stayed up till like two or three in the morning because I was worried about him. He was 
slightly off course in the Cheviots and and sort of going around in circles. And I was madly texting him, but but his phone had died. You know, the battery had died, and um, yeah, it's it's very exciting. I'm looking looking forward to it. I think it's a great way to save a lot of money on boot camp for anybody looking to lose that Christmas fat. <laughs> like you definitely yeah. come at the end of that race, like you wouldn't have to worry about the extra ten pounds that you put on over Christmas. No, no. In fact, I'll be encouraging my clients over Christmas to eat more than yeah, eat more than they think because they're gonna burn it off. Yes, it's <laughs> yeah. You simply you can't you can't get the calories in on that race. Yeah. See, see, joking aside though, like going into a race like that, do you think it's important to put a few extra pound on? Uh, Good question. I I would encourage people to yeah be be you know a little bit a little bit plumper than you might be for you know for for a hundred mile race or a fifty mile race or something where where that weight is important. Mm. Um, I would yeah. Um, I think yeah you want to be you be super healthy and not too thin or you're gonna a you're gonna break or you're gonna be colder. Um, and it is a race. Well, yeah, Ian Keith's got his own sort of tactics on on nutrition, but for most people, I think um, you want to be eating lots and lots and getting getting that energy in because you simply can't get. You, you know, you're just going to be burning calories around the clock and you just can't get enough of those back in, really. So 2015, then, you came third in that race. Another race that really sort of keeps on drawing me and I keep on hearing it about is the Dragon's Back. It looks absolutely fantastic. Yeah, that's a wonderful race. Um, I um, And I think at the time, and probably still the case, you know, those were seen as the toughest two races in Britain, really. Like, you could do the Spine Race and the Dragon's Back Race. And when I went to do it in, what, 2015, that was the third, I think the third iteration. There'd been the one like 20 years before, I think it was. And then it had come back and Steve Birkinshaw had won it. And there was the film that we'd all watched. And then it was on again two years later. So it was incredibly exciting to be part of it. And, and there was a strong lineup. There was like Jim Mann and Jez Bragg and um, Pavel Polonce was there as well. And, and lots of, yeah, lots of very strong, Jasmine, that's where I met Jasmine, um, Beth Pascal, uh, a good friend, and um, Lizzie Wraith was doing it. So it was it was a strong lineup, and it was really exciting. It felt, I suppose, semi pioneering. Admittedly, yeah, it was the third one, but it was all a bit. It was all still fairly new. Um, and yeah, it's just it's a good. You know, Wales is stunning. I've really fallen in love with Wales in the last few years. That first day is pretty tough. You know, going through the the you know over Snowdon and and all the mountains around there. How how far is it? Because there is like this. I know there's sixteen thousand meters of climbing. And- not sure about the distance though is it a five-day stage race yeah so it's the the big difference with the spine is it is a multi-stage race so they do stop you each day and you can you know sleep and eat well and recover so that does make it easier than the spine or at least less taxing um on you overall although yeah most people are pretty destroyed by the end in fact um i think ian corliss was there taking photos and on the last day nearly everyone has these sort of puff puffy faces and, and everyone looks pretty destroyed because there is like a there's like a 45 percent dropout i think it could well be our tent i think you start with eight people in each tent and our tent got yeah definitely a lot quieter and, and more empty i think there were four or five of us by the end um so there's two things i mean the terrain's tough so people were, were twisting knees and and, and uh breaking yeah breaking <laughs> bones and um but also you do have to move fairly well and, and it, what was interesting is i knew two guys who had completed the spine race earlier that year but in the dragon's back they didn't they didn't complete it because they couldn't move quickly enough on the terrain so you do have to move a bit more quickly and on the spine i think a slow runner who's incredibly determined can can get there you know you just keep trudging where on the dragon's back you do have to move well and there's more of a navigational element too um so yeah that brings us to your first attack of utmb which actually opens today for registration um i've just actually put my first 
registration in for UTMB. So oh. fingers crossed I don't get in. <laughs> it's, it's actually a 2021 goal for me because I've already got next year booked out. Um, I did CCC this year. Um, it can be quite expensive doing these big alpine races. Well, c- congratulations. I, I assume you got around all right. Yeah, no, I really enjoyed it. Um, was actually really put back by the whole buzz of Chamonix and it really is the mecca. Um, for anybody that hasn't been there to experience that the first time and then to see all the UTMB finishers coming across the finish line, um, especially near the back end. Firstly, yeah. firstly from the, the pointy end where you've got phenomenal names coming across the finish line to see those people. Um, Cause we're lucky CCC just finishes just before all that happens. And so you have both sides of the race, which are absolutely amazing. Like this, the point in the end to see those big names coming across. And then the guys that are just hanging on at the very back, um, the whole place comes very emotional. You know what I mean? That last day mm. and you've got the PTL boys coming in and all that good stuff. Um, and it's just this big urge of respect for people coming down that finishing shoot. And the amount of times, I think I've seen three three um, proposals at the finish line. Oh, wow. Um, I was like, oh, thank God I'm married. You might regret that one. Um, <laughs> but, you know, the amount of times a tear just wanted to come to the eye, it's such an emotional place to be. Yeah, it really is. Uh, and I, lo- I love all that stuff. And, and I guess it's, the yeah, the triumph of... of in a way, it's the little microcosms of the triumph of the sort of human spirit without getting sort of, you know, too too hippie, you know, the, especially the people coming in last are, have gone through a huge, you know, a huge struggle um, over a couple of days and and, and they've they won, you know. So I love going along to, to see those guys coming in and, and you mentioned the sort of buzz of Chamonix as well. That That's instantly what got me, you know, I love the spine race and there are lots of great races in Britain, but nothing compares to going out there and, and the, the French crowds are just so generous and so passionate and so involved. And there are so many of them who get behind the race. And I just, you know, I just really enjoyed that infectious feeling of, of goodwill and celebrating human, yeah, human triumph and human um, courage, I suppose. Um, and I straight away thought, you know, I've got to come back to this. And I, I, I suppose, yeah, I ended up going four years in a row because it was just, I just, yeah, I just could, and I've got friends who've gone like eight years in a row, you know, because um, yeah. just being part of that big occasion is just, yeah, a great feeling, I suppose, is the simplest way of putting it. Yeah, it's a bit like a drug. So in 2015, mm. you come 29th, which was absolutely phenomenal in that field. Um, was that a, a, a surprise to you? I think so, because um, I remember chatting to a friend of mine that morning who had done the race a couple of times, and he knew me quite well, and, and I said, look, I might... I might see if I can get into the top hundred. And he, he kind of said, Oh, easy, you know, don't, don't, you know, <laughs> don't get carried away. Don't mess. Don't, you know, don't, don't smash yourself up. Yeah. Yeah. And I instantly thought, Oh yeah, he knows it better than me. Yeah. Maybe I shouldn't be so, so um, ambitious. Um, but I suppose I still was in my mind being ambitious. And uh, yeah, I remember the night went, the night was gorgeous. Uh you know, it was warm enough. You, you just, the t-shirt was fine. And there were the stars out. It was a lovely clear evening. And then the sun slowly comes up and the mountains all turn pink around you. And I just thought this is, you know, this is heaven. This is wonderful. But I was also aware that the day would get a bit hotter and I was trying to move, you know, move quicker at night so that when it got hotter, I was already in, you know, I suppose I didn't have to work so hard. I was already in a good position, but of course 
that sort of thinking never really goes well if you try and you know work a bit harder than you should early on it usually comes back to bite you and and, and so it did um and it got yeah it got harder as the day went on um and I, but I remember coming up yeah just being towards the top of these mountains or at least these mountain passes and looking down you'd see this village down in the valley below you just so far down and you just <laughs> thought there is no way they're sending us all the way down there they couldn't possibly do that to us that is just too mean um and of course they are they're, they're sending you all the way down yeah. to that village that, that looks um 500 miles away um and i was just yeah blown away by this the, yeah the size of the mountains and and, and how um how brutal it all is i suppose it's, it's but also a, the crowd it's such a steep descent like isn't it like that is painful Yes, and, and that was the big take home as well. Is just my body wasn't. Um, I don't know how you found that aspect of it, but my my quads and my legs uh, and my body in general just wasn't ready for those types of mountains, especially the downhills. You know, I hadn't really run in mountains like that before. I, I suppose the dragon's back. Of course, you're going up and down some mountains, but it's a lot more rugged. UTMB is is usually like good paths that you can run quite fast, but it'll be a kilometer descent all in one go. Like, and that just yeah smashes your quads if you're not used to it. Yeah. And of course, it does that several times over, and you get pretty sore. I think yeah, people always go on about how much climbing there is in the race, but it's it's the descent that gets you. Um, my IT band actually went on the last, there's two more climbs after my IT band had went. So obviously climbing up was okay, but coming back down, um, the, thir- the three big climbs, I was sort of coming down like a crab. <laughs> Sideways. Ow. Yikes. Yeah, I mean, going up doesn't doesn't usually hurt you. It's just slow and, and frustrating, but going down is what hurts. And um yeah. Or the, especially if the first couple don't hurt and you 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 know you you take them a bit too quickly, possibly. And that's one of my big tips probably for people is that first downhill you you need to be a bit cautious. Um, first downhill into Saint Gervais, but at the same time, for yeah, those first two times I did UTMB, I would. This sounds almost contradictory, but I was I was running downhills with bad technique. I was kind of running with the brakes on, and you're just accelerating your muscle damage there. So over time, I've worked with. Shane Benzie, um, this technique coach, um, and I've learned to yeah run the downhills better, I suppose, with a bit more freedom, with better technique, um, without the brakes on, hopefully, and over time. And uh, yeah, I, and I've run in mountains more, and I've done strength work to get my legs stronger. And over time, yeah, there's still a significant discomfort towards the end of a race like that, but it's not, my quads don't kind of blow out and get super sore like they used to, which is a huge, yeah, huge difference. Yeah. I know this is a very individual question, but what about um, fueling during that um, race then? Because I think I, I was doing amazing up to Champelac and I didn't even want to pull in, um, but the family and all was there. I went in, I took way too much coke and started gorving myself and come out like a bloated pig. I've been lying <laughs> out in the sun for three or four days and it really it really just made it real tough the very last like six or seven hours of the race. I added two or three hours onto my race time. Um what do you fu- what do you fuel on like do you stay away from the sugars do you keep it savory um i think fueling is something i could 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 improve on and be a bit more calculated with but generally i've been pretty um i was going to say lucky but it probably maybe it comes from my hiking background where i'm quite used to you know being out all day and eating on the move um i guess i always think of it as little little and often so i definitely try and have something within the first hour of the race you don't want to wait till you're um you know, your glycogen levels are, are really low. You want to be eating already so that you don't need to tuck into those stores, although you inevitably will do. But, um, you know, try and push that onto later in the race. So I start eating early. Uh, ideally, I'll have an alarm on my watch for maybe every hour. Uh, but ideally, you're eating something every half hour, even if it's just half a bar, one gel. In terms of sweets and savory, 
Uh, I suppose in my head, it'd be great to save the sweets till later on, but I'm too greedy. And, and when I get, you know, when I see all this chocolate, I do, I, I find it difficult not to tuck in. But then like a lot of people, I'll get sort of taste fatigue or at least sort of sugary mouth or sugary tongue. Uh, and I'll switch to more savory, real foods. Although I, tr yeah, ideally you're, you're eating both most of the time, I suppose, you know, try and have something a bit more sustaining. Uh, but, but, you know, ha you know, some gels or some chocolate, you know, it is worth having those things on you anyway, even for mini emergencies, mini bonks. What was your favorite food? Well, the noodle soup was done it for me at each of the yes. stations. Yeah, that can be really good. It's really salty, isn't it? So you're yeah, hydrating yeah. and getting the salts in. Um, I do quite like the cheeses. I definitely don't like sort of salami and bread. That doesn't suit me. But the I'll plonk a bit of cheese in. I'm 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 grabbing bits of chocolate and bits of biscuits. Those tuck tuck those tuck biscuits. Yeah. Salty, savoury. Uh, I mean, they're nothing special in a way, but in a race, they're nice and they go in easily. Um, and then I also have a period near the end of the race. Uh, I'll always, nearly always, convert to kind of liquid calories. Um, so that's, I suppose, smoothies or chocolate milk or some mountain fuel or um, 33 fuels make make a similar, uh, a good sort of, um, yeah, liquid calories. Uh, and then you're not having to, A, you're more likely to hydrate more as you do that, but you're not having to sort of chew or digest. Um, so, yeah, when you, especially if you're going off food, that's a good way. And then fruit, I tuck into fruit as well, bits of banana and orange. Um I think it, it almost doesn't, to an extent, it doesn't matter what it is as long as you're putting stuff in because the, the big danger is if you stop putting stuff in, I think, well, not danger, but that's an easy, it's easy to, towards the end of the race to not eat enough, which has definitely happened to me once. And, and you just kind of, um, yeah, you, you yeah. get more and more into a funk and, and all the food looks disgusting and, um, and yeah, you're going to have a slower, more miserable time, I suppose. What did you put down the progression between 2015 and 2016? What do you do differently? Because 29th to 19th in UTMB, that's pretty substantial. I think, first of all, I started going to, you know, mountains or bigger slopes as often as I could. And for me, that's the Brecon Beacons. I don't think I was going weekly, but I was going there a lot more often. And I'm trying to think what B races I did that year, but it was... Yeah, you did the Highland oh, Plain, I did a... but it's later yeah. on, is it? So I did a Bob Graham round. Um, okay. So that was intentional, intentional, like as preparation for UTMB, I just thought I've got to get more used to, especially the downhills, but going up and down big lumps. Cause you know, I live in the Cotswolds and the lumps here aren't that big. So it was getting, yeah, just getting used to going up and down lumps, big lumps. Um, like you, I found the, yeah, hiking up hills has, has come semi-naturally to me, although I can always improve. So I think that was the main thing was, yeah, getting to big lumps more often. Just trying to replicate the race a little bit more in your training. Yeah, yeah, be more specific, I suppose. Um, my, I just, my, yeah, it had just been a shock that first time, and, and I tried to do, yeah, get in, in amongst more lumps. I probably did more, a bit more strength work, you know, squats and lunges with, with weights to, and some weight vest hiking as well. Um, okay. I'll admit I had a coach, I took on a coach, Ian Sharman, who's US based, but he's a sort of hundred mile specialist. And he, he helped me quite a lot in getting me yeah, better prepared, uh, for the race. Yeah, um, I have to say at the beginning of CCC now, I, I thought I was training with full kit all summer, um, until the morning of CCC and I put my vest on. I was like, holy shit. Like that is so much heavier than what I'd been training with. Oh, right. Is that because you sort of add your food and if you've got two yeah. full flasks, that's a kilogram? I think I was just being a bit of a coward during training, to be honest. When I was filling the pack, I wasn't really doing myself justice. 
um you were were still trying to be a bit light um but by the time you added all the water and i suppose food as well the frustrating thing about it because i've been caught out with food in a few races before that the frustrating thing was you know i didn't eat half the bloody food that i was carrying because there's so many the fuel stations were that good yeah yeah uh, I guess to me that's an ongoing ongoing experiment. Um, I think if you are someone who who can yeah can have most of the stuff at the aid stations, then then try and minimise what you're carrying down to maybe you know three or four emergency items, I suppose. Um, but yeah, I, I don't don't always get that right. I, I feel like even last year I started the race with too you know too heavy a pack, too much food in it. Um, but yeah, you don't want to. You, you always want to make sure you've got something on you, I suppose. Yeah, but your weight is actually that's the very first time I met you. Well, not met you, Damien, but was <laughs> made aware of you. Um, anybody that's going into a race like that, if you were like me, a bit a real novice, I was checking out YouTube and just packs. I just wanted to see what kit I needed. Um, and I actually found a video of you then in front. I actually think it was our hotel was behind you, actually, in this big open green where you were showing what race pack you were going with. Oh, um, yeah. I can't remember what the... It's a big field. Paragl- uh, yeah. Where all the paragliders yes. land. Yes. Um, our hotel was just behind you, actually. And ah. so you are so interested in trying to find out, you know, everybody's kit. There's not that much information online um, as there is, but your kit was extremely light. Um, that's, that is one key thing. What weight, do you know what weight was total, total weight was in your race pack? I, I, I don't, I don't know, to be honest. I mean, again, I'm lucky to, to work with Innovate and they they do have some great lightweight kits. So, Waterproofs, for example, you know, um, waterproof jacket and trousers could it could be pretty much 200 grams. Um, and yeah, I'm looking for the lightest possible mid layer and, and so on. Um, but I, I would recommend anyone who goes out there, when you go out there, like take maybe two options for most things because we, you still don't know what the weather's going to do. And it can be, I've been out there in hailstorms and snow and mine, you know, sub, sub, zero degrees and i've been out there in 30 degrees and um you're better off going out there with almost all your stuff you know and they do actually do three different kit lists now they, they have like a winter bad weather kit list and they might invoke that on, on the day of the race or something and i think you have to carry goggles or, or at least some sort of eye protection and things like that so they um you need to take a lot of stuff and then they decide close to the race what you'll need but yeah i've always been a bit obsessed with especially probably it comes from the spine race but I, you know, lightest isn't always best, but it quite often is. <laughs> yeah. um, you don't want to uh, get caught out. Simple as that. No, no, not up in the mountains. So, so quite often, yeah. The last two years, I haven't gone with Innovate's lightest waterproof because it was genuinely going to rain. Um, I wanted a little bit more protection, so I've taken their Storm Shell, which is excellent. Um, but it's only like 175 grams, but you get a lot of protection for that, and that was enough in hail and, and rain and wind um, and snow. That was enough um overnight and, and stuff um that, that's the one that jasmine wore during the spine race ah uh, no it? that that that's the protec the black right, okay. the black that's a proper winter jacket i took a storm shell which is yeah so it's less than 200 grams okay, um right. they're they're the nice colored ones sort of green and red and uh blue um they yeah they're really they're really good they're a really good bit of kit so um, one, one thing surprised me in 2016 another race that's on my bucket list which is definitely going to be done if we can just put it in the schedule is the highland fling so you actually came second in that race yeah i'd say that was um yeah that's a great race i really recommend it in terms of like atmosphere and attention to detail from the race directors and it's yeah it's a lovely race um that, that, that was a really 
big yeah. moment for me because yeah, that shows a lot of it, speed, like fifty-three miles. You know, that's a different type of race. Yeah, um, and 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 it was actually a trial. It was named as the British Championships, and this, the last time they've done that, and and also a trial for the GB team. So everyone was there. You know, Jez Bragg and Robbie Britton and Kim Collison, Donnie Campbell, uh, Jason Cavill in the, this all of the men's race, um, Paul wow. Cherney. So there was a. It was the most competitive British race easily that I'd ever done, and yeah, I just I think there were two things. I was I just happened to be fitter than I, that I'd ever been. I think partly partly because I'd already done a multi-stage race earlier in the year, which I think had helped get me fit. And then, um, and then also I just, for the first time I paced it properly. Like I, I was happy to be a tortoise. I was happy to be, you know, only just inside the top 10. I think I was sixth or seventh for a lot of the race. Uh, and then towards the end, I just had a bit left and, and people were falling away. Um, and so, yeah, it was, it was, to be honest, it was almost life-changing that, that race to come second. And then I was in the GB team later in the year, but it also, um, made me think, oh well, maybe I'm maybe I'm, I'm alright at this stuff. And yeah, I started up mm-hmm. started up a Strava account and an Instagram account <laughs> straight afterwards. <laughs> but it, it, it demonstrated really good range, though, didn't it? I suppose so. Yeah. Um, I mean, I still I'm still when it comes to international races, I've learned the hard way this year that 100k and, and less, I'm I'm not going to be that competitive. But at the time, I mean, what's that four years ago? At the time in Britain, I suppose I could be um competitive at that distance I, I don't know i don't know now i think probably now 100 miles is probably my best distance but um yeah at the time that was an amazing yeah uh, an amazing moment for me actually yeah so 2017 then you went and you done mds marathon de sables um why why did you fit that into your schedule because it seems to be a bit off the wall to the path you were taking well it, it was a strange one um um i actually had a i don't know if this is a I don't know if this is allowed, but it happened. But a good friend of mine um, couldn't couldn't do it, and he loved the race, and he sort of gave me his place. Um, and I just he I just kind of thought, well, there's no other way I'd ever do this race. It wasn't one I aspired to do, if I'm honest, because you know people are a bit snobby about that one. Um, partly the fee, and partly the sort of claim that it's the toughest race in the world when you know it really really isn't. Um, but I guess I just had an opportunity and, and I do know some people who are, you know, really experienced and they do love that race cause it is quite unique. Uh, sorry, you can't be quite unique, but it is, it is quite a, um, iconic race, I suppose. Yeah. Yeah. It is one of the big four or five that most people have heard of and that, that's quite special. Um, so I thought, why not give it a go? And, um, unfortunately it's the, yeah, the last time I got injured was, was in, in that sort of winter. So I didn't have much training beforehand, literally five weeks of training, um so i didn't yeah i didn't do as well as i would have hoped but in terms of an experience it was it was great and and it's the with that one it is the tent life because you you don't no one's got their mobile phones you can't go and check your emails really um and you just spend a lot of time hanging around the tent talking and that's that's wonderful actually so yeah that was that was the stuff i remember most yeah so that's early in the year isn't it it's around april time yeah yeah. So sort of set you up. Um, my next race actually is Lavarado in June. Oh, um, nice. So you done you done that in 2017. Yeah. How, how did you find that compared to the Alps Chamonix? Because the Dolomites well, look amazing. Yeah, I, I think it's more more spectacular. Um, it makes the Alps seem, you know, a little bit sort of big and generic in comparison that the Dolomites are much more charismatic i think more colorful there's more shapes 
Uh, they look more ancient because they're kind of more dusty and you kind of really get up into them and see them properly as well. Um, a lot more rocky. Uh, I, yeah, I just, I've been there hiking the year before and I just really fell in love with the area. Um, and in terms of the race, yeah, it was my first sort of top 10 at an ultra trail world tour race. So it was a, yeah, it was a big moment for me. It gave me a lot of, I suppose, belief that, that maybe I could challenge some of these guys that I'd, um, been looking up to for, for years, but, um, yeah. And, and in terms of UTMB preparation, it's, it's great because it's sort of like a three quarters UTMB. So hopefully it doesn't trash you quite as much, but it really, you know, there's a lot of, yeah, there's a lot of, a lot of ups and downs. So it's, um, yeah. It's good prep. Yeah, that, that, that's the reason why I said I hope we don't get into UTMB next year because it's pretty close, like isn't it? It's the end of June, July. You've got like two months to sort. Yeah, well, I, I suppose it is three quarters of the way as well. It's not a a full distance. Yeah, I think it's doable to a lot of people, and a lot, a lot of the elites actually. You know, people like Pau Capel and Tim Tollefson, they often come out and do Lavaredo before as like a warm up to UTMB. So I, I think two months is okay. I mean, three months would be, would be even better, but two months is okay, I think, uh, as long as you don't, yeah, as long as you're not sort of too injured or fatigued from it. Any do's or don'ts? Any sort of tips for next year? Uh, for, La- for Lavaredo, um, yeah. I do remember getting quite thirsty. Uh, so I would, and I am someone who, yeah, I'm always skimping on liquids. I, I, I need to, yeah, be more. I would, if in doubt, take, you know, take, you know, fill both your soft flasks. And, um, I think as the day warmed up, obviously you start in the evening and go through the night and that's usually cooler and you don't need as much liquid. And I probably got in the habit of thinking, Oh, just one bottle's enough. Um, so as it warmed up, it does can get quite warm. So I would, yeah, be wary of that, but there are some mountain streams occasionally to dunk your head in. Um, don't underestimate like with a lot of these races, when you look at the profile, you kind of think, Oh, it's three or three or four big climbs. And then a few little zigzags at the end, uh, don't don't underestimate those zigzags at the end because they are um they're still hefty zigzags uh so it's it's hard, yeah. it's hard to tell in the elevation um courses because they're over such a long distance and i remember running downhill and climbing and ccc and thinking no the elevation showed this was all downhill <laughs> i don't know where these climbs are coming from yes <laughs> the, 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 yeah, long, so- the longer you go the harder it is to actually determine yeah, so it's better not to, um, yeah, better not to get too settled on any, any particular ideas. There's lot, there's just lots of ups and downs. Um, but it's a beautiful course, and there are some, there are some good runnable bits and some, a few more technical bits, but not too much. Um, yeah, it's a great, it's a great, great day out. But se- seven place, like after getting the second Highland Fling, which is late on in the year, and you know, you're a bit injured. Six months later, you're you're doing Labrador. I always call it Labrador, so apologize to everybody. Um, but getting seventh place then, you must have went into UTMB then with a high confidence. Did you, what were your aspirations going into the race that year? Well, I, I, yeah, so I'd been 19th the year before, and I guess I just wanted to do, hoped to do, to be able to do better than that because that previous year I'd been really, really quite conservative. I had a few things holding me back. Uh, such as a you know just a slight Achilles issue, and and I had the race for Great Britain um, not long afterwards. So I had a few things making me be sensible, and I actually wasn't in the top hundred uh, at the first aid station, first major major aid station, Saint Gervais. So I, I I raced very conservatively. So this this time around, my third UTMB, I was keener not to be yeah you know, not to be so cautious. Um, but this was the year where Killian Jornet, Francois Dame, Xavier Thevenhaar, uh, Jim Wormsley, um, all came to the race at the same time. And, and I think the American website, ironfar.com called it, um, I think they said the strongest ever lineup for a trail ultra marathon. So, um, 
I was, yeah, wanting to do better, but being realistic was, um, you know, uh, Paul Capel was there as well. You know, and of course, Tim Tollison, Zach Miller, like everyone, you know, who was anyone in the men's race. So I was quite realistic maybe about what was possible, but what did happen? Yeah, unfortunately. So yeah, it went, it went fairly well. So what was good is this time there was quite British weather. It was a lot colder. There was hail and snow and I ran quite a lot with Andy Simmons in the night. And I don't know, we were just chatting and pacing it quite well and holding ourselves back a bit. And I remember going past kind of David Laney and Sage Canaday and thinking, this is a bit surreal. This is going quite well. And yeah, getting to Cormier, which is around halfway, I just still feeling good and, and left there feeling feeling sort of boisterous and, and thinking this is all right. And of course, it all gets a bit harder towards the end. But somehow I got into got into 10th place. And I was like, Oh, my God, like, you know, I'm in 10th place. I never thought this was possible. But and I did, I did, I think, neglect my fueling. And I got into a bit of a funk. And I did slip two places back towards the end in the last few hours. Which, um, you know, so I came in Chamonix in 12th and, and that felt amazing. My kids were there to meet me. and But, you know, throughout, you know, throughout the next few months, I had this burning sense of frustration that I'd got into the top 10, which to me seemed, you know, unimaginable a couple of years ago before that. And uh, that just made me want to come back and try again and see if that was possible for me to, you know, not just get in the top 10, I suppose, but stay in the top 10 and, and finish there. Yeah. It's quite, it's quite extraordinary, like, because we're talking six years from running a 140 half marathon to coming 12th in UTMB. And anybody's been there, and those names that you're throwing out, anybody that follows trail running at all, um, at the who's who were at that race, like, to be 12th finisher amongst, like, the world's best, really. Um, I know there might have been a couple of, of months of sort of settling, you'd lost the 10th into the 12th. Afterwards, the reflection on that must have been phenomenal. Well, I, I was pleased. I would have taken 12th beforehand, definitely. But I think if I just moved up and just got to 12th, I would have thought, right, well, that's probably the best I can do. But almost getting to 10th and then and then failing a little bit was probably helpful to me because it made me think I could do better. I could do better. And by that stage, I mean, I still had very much have, and I need to work on this, I still have very much kind of an imposter syndrome or at least sort of inferiority complex when I'm up against some of these guys. And I really can't, on the flat, like I really can't keep up with them. Um, so a lot of them, you know, People like Tim Tollison and Sage Canada, they, they, they can run 220 marathons and, and I can't do anything like that. So I don't have, yeah, a lot of them were collegiate runners where they've had proper, you know, they've been running on a track every day and, and had proper coaching, for, you know, for years and years. And I've had nothing, nothing like that. I'm just not, don't have the talent that they have. But if you throw in all these big lumps, I suppose, and make the race much longer and, and so more things come into play, like the eating and like looking after yourself and you know, just judging things more smartly and not getting carried away. Uh, I seem to have, you know, some chance of, of catching some of them up a little bit if they make mistakes. And that's, yeah, that's really exciting to me, I suppose. Almost I feel like I'm um, not cheating, but like I shouldn't be ahead of some of these guys or close to them. So it gives me this enormous sort of thrill of thinking, um, yeah, I, I've, I've sort of sneaked up on them or, or I'm, I'm <laughs> yeah, I sort of, yeah, I shouldn't be near them, but I somehow am, some of them anyway. Um and and that still that still excites me. So yeah, so I went back yeah the the following year and 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 I must admit there were more DNFs that last year, so it did help me. But but, but yeah, when but even after that though, that sort of makes you like everybody's got their own skill sets, and obviously training in Wales or England in those cold climates, um, when the rain comes on the hailstones, you know it sort of moves to your advantage then. 
So everyone's got their own special skill sets. And it may be like these guys are training. Some of those guys go over there a month in advance and get really acclimatized to the altitude and things like that. Um, so finding yourself in those positions, it's all about different skill sets really, isn't it? Yes, I think it is. So, so, so that raw speed that some of them have as a natural talent, obviously they've worked on it too, but, but they, they, they have, some of them have genetic advantages. You know, that becomes less of a factor as the race gets longer, as, as you bring in the terrain and the weather. And definitely the weather has helped me. Like those first two years, it was quite hot. Those second two years where I've done better. Yeah, I've been fitter. Yeah, I've been stronger. Mentally, I've wanted it more. But but actually the weather's been helpful too. It's been, you know, cold and British and rainy. And I, I love that. And, and I remember going past a couple of Spanish runners and they were huddled under their waterproof. <laughs> and I was in I was in my T-shirt to me. It was just perfect, you know. And I'm not, you know, I don't, don't mean to sound like I'm mocking them, but but that was just the right temperature for me. That was fine. And to them, that was, that was not so pleasant. Um, so I guess... Yeah, when I go out there, I, I it can do anything, and I yeah, I'm always hoping it's going to be um, cold, cold and wet. That's how I like it. I remember doing um, Tokyo Marathon, and like all the Japanese guys, they had like scarves on, woolly hats on, gloves, and I just in shorts and vests. And it, didn't even, it didn't even feel cold to me at all. Yes, um, and I was twice the height of them all as well. At six foot, almost six foot two, so it was like a giant coming down through them. Um, so there's a couple of things moving in 2018. A couple of things really stood out. One in particular was your marathon time. So you got 2:38 in in Manchester. Yeah. Um, like how how did you incorporate? Like for me, I'm an athlete. I use that term lightly, but who has to focus in one area? Like I wouldn't have that range at all. Like so, to get down to 2:38, that normally takes a lot of focus and maybe a good four month training block. I guess, um, so yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not passionate about the road marathon, but I thought last year, so I was, I was self-coached uh, by them, but I just thought, what's the one thing I really haven't worked on yet? What, how can I improve? And I thought, well, I haven't really worked on my speed. Like I've spent a couple, two or three years obsessing over getting stronger legs and going up and down big lumps, and especially the downhills, improving the downhills. And then I thought, we, you know, I have definitely improved in those areas. So where else can I improve? And it was speed was the obvious thing. Um, so for the first time, I started going to track sessions near where I live at te Team Team Bath. Um, there's a fantastic coach up there called Paul King, who I must name check, and just a really, really good bunch of runners. So I would, it was really humbling actually, because I mean, with the shorter shorter local races, sometimes if it's off if it's off road, I might do all right. Like I might get on the podium, I suppose. But when I go up to the yeah the sessions at te at Bath. Um, there are usually six or eight guys who are faster than me. You know, sometimes they're even lapping me. You know, they're they're, they're another level to me. So it's quite humbling, but it really makes me work hard and, and sort of try and cling on to them. So I did do, I suppose, a fairly, I suppose, a fairly concentrated block of of some speed work. But I did have Madeira Island Ultra Trail, I think, three weeks afterwards, and that was my main focus. So I didn't really taper that much for for Manchester, and I it wasn't like I didn't consider it an A race. I just wanted to do it as a training run to improve my speed. And I don't know, I, I didn't, even though I hit a PB and, and I, I did, I still didn't think, wow, you know, I love marathons. I guess I just, you know, I get uncomfortable on roads. Uh, I'd, I'd much rather have the discomfort of going up and down mountains. I feel totally comfortable with that. That's, um, that's the sort of pain I like, I suppose. Was that your time though? 2.38? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think I'd already run 2.43 before that, maybe at London or, um, that's unreal. Well, but I, like I say, like it's, um, 
when I go up to Bath, like there are, you know, five, six, seven, eight guys who run run quicker than that. Um, there are probably a few, yeah, a few around the sort of two thirty. Yeah, but what, areas. What place did they come in UTMB? <laughs> <laughs> well i guess that was my yeah uh, i thought yeah i want to work on my speed and see if that helps but uh, but yeah a lot of the guys as i mentioned before at utmb can run sort of 220 or less marathons so uh, yeah it's it's not it's not a terrible marathon thingy but it's yeah. not by any means even national sort of class it's not it's certainly not world class um so well, it does it does yeah. help though it definitely does help when you have that pace come especially those long sort of Especially in likes of UTMB, there is quite a lot of runnable trail in that race. Yeah, yeah, there is, and I'd encourage people who are getting ready not to neglect that side of things. Like, yeah, go up and down some lumps for a couple of months beforehand, or, or um, six weeks. But before that, I would concentrate on yeah, just getting as fit as possible. I mean, the number one thing you can do is get as fit as possible, and usually, hopefully, if you're doing that smartly, you would include some some speed work for a, for a concentrated sort of block. Yeah. Uh, um, a macro cycle of that, um, different types of speed work, you know, is going to help. It's going to make things feel easier. And it's good mental training as well because it's, you know, it's difficult to do a tempo run. It's unpleasant, but it's good. Yeah, good for your mind, I think. Before we get to UTMB then, like the Ice Ultra, like what time of year was that? Oh, I think that was February, I think. 142 miles, like what the heck? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, again, that's a multi-stage race, so so you're stopping and resting, um, and having an o- you're having an okay feed, but again, you have to carry all your own food, and I, you know, I was trying to be competitive, so I didn't carry much. Uh, definitely felt hungry. Yeah, that's an incredible race, like really, really beautiful, most beautiful race I've done. I think it, it was in yeah Arctic Sweden. It's with a company called Beyond the Ultimate. They do a few multi-stage races around the world and it was just gorgeous just running through snow forests like kind of narnia um northern lights were out one one night and it's yeah yeah just absolutely beautiful wow are you just being greedy when you're selecting these races or is there logic (laughs) uh if i'm honest i do get one or two invites um nowadays um most of them i have to say no to because they come a bit late or they're not going to fit with a races uh i'm pretty sure if i remember they they asked if i would, would come wanted to come and do their race so yeah very lucky very lucky in that respect and i, I have found the two or three times that i've done a multi-stage race early in the year that has kind of that's been a really good training block as well that has set me up nicely and maybe yeah i mean maybe i need to get back to doing that because this year wasn't such a good year for me and i didn't <laughs> didn't do one so maybe i need to look for one for next year yeah because utmb in the end of august like you know the half year goes very very quickly doesn't it so it's great to have that base at the start of the year yeah yeah i think that as long as it doesn't you know injure you or get you too yeah. fatigued then it's a, that can be a smart thing to do well that that is a good question then so how haven't you burnt out up till now um you, you've I done a I lot mean, there I, like so yeah, yeah, and 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 definitely these last two years, while I've been self-coached, I've I've pushed up the volume more, and and sometimes done hundred-mile weeks, and definitely as I approach UTMB, I'm trying to get all, a lot of vert in, you know. So, I think some of it is I do, you know, I I visit a physio regularly, I do I do do strength strength work regularly, I I try and eat very healthily. I don't follow any any diets, but I eat lots of fruit and vegetables and I eat enough, you know, and I speak to sports dietitian Rini McGregor if I have any questions. So there's a and then, and now, especially at some I've just turned forty four and I can really feel the value of sleep mm-hmm. now. I think a few years ago I could, you know, I could get up early for three days in a row, run, work hard, and I could seem to be unaffected. But now I I am affected by that. So if I get up yeah, if I get up at five o'clock to get to Brecon Beacons 
I'm getting trying to get to bed early that night and, and being smart the next day as well. So it's a combination of, of all those things. I think, um, yeah, sleep's sleep's a valuable lesson, a uh, valuable weapon almost in your in your training. I think it's all that. And then I'm so passionate about it that I'm happy not to, you know, I hardly drink when I'm training. I'd say I pretty much, you know, I usually go two or three months before UTMB without, without alcohol. That'll mean I'll sleep better and recover quicker. Just trying to maintain so, balance, really. Yeah, yeah. And, and also with diet, I don't cut anything out. Um, certainly don't cut carbohydrates out. Um, I wouldn't advise anyone does that. Um, uh, and I do have, you know, I have chocolate and cake and stuff. Um, I don't, don't try and, you know, restrict myself too much. But yeah, I was trying to eat enough and eat smartly. Um, I think it's a combination of all those things. But all of that comes from, I suppose, comes from the passion for it. You know, I, I just love, absolutely love the sport. I love going up and down lumps and hurting a bit and, and, and taking on challenges and, and um, interactions with, with crowds and staff and, and other runners. Yeah, I'm still, I still feel like I'm in a honeymoon uh, with the sport, to be honest. And I think that's, that's the main thing. Yeah, because you, you haven't actually been running that long, really. I know you've done a lot of hiking before this, which maybe doesn't burn you out as much. Like, But our paths are very, very similar. I'm 44 as well. <laughs> no, I'm just laughing there. I just look down at your achievements. Um, our paths are not <laughs> similar at all. Like, um, the similarities are we're 44, and I've done my first half in 2011. Um, but I do have a foot injury at the minute, so I'm, I have feel like i've always even though i'm 44 i haven't come anywhere close to my potential um because i i haven't been running that long really and you know if you can get momentum you're always getting further and quicker and i always feel even though i'm 44 i've still got a lot more to give oh that, i mean that's that's almost definitely true and that's great that you you feel that way um and i, I suppose yeah some of my uh very moderate success probably comes from yeah the lack of injuries and then you get that you know, that really boring word consistency. So I suppose, because I hopefully because I've looked after myself, I get that consistent training. So you get two or three years on top of each other and then just things just gradually feel easier and easier. Yeah, unfortunately, when you get when you get a little setback like that, you know, you don't, it depends how long you're out and whether you cross train and so on, but you don't necessarily lose loads, but it can be an interruption. And I suppose, yeah, you, but the more consistent training you can get, I think the more the more it'll help you. Do you think it's, do you think it's helped you like sort of coming into the sport around 2011 rather than 2001? Yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I, I do joke that it was, you know, part, partly a midlife crisis because I was like late 30s. It definitely suited me. I'd just become a parent at, around the same time. Uh, and obviously it's a, it's a good sport for, you know, you could do it at six in the morning or nine o'clock at night, of course, you're training. Whereas before that, I played football. And obviously, you know, you can't get your mates out at nine o'clock at night to play football very easily. So it does fit. It fitted my life at the time. And I guess I was looking for something uh, maybe to almost almost prove that I was, you know, not not over the hill, possibly, if I'm honest. You haven't got a sports car then, leather jacket or a tattoo? Well, <laughs> well, my fear is that, yeah, if I hadn't discovered this sport, then that's the way I might have gone. So I think, it, yeah, ultimately it comes down to, you know, a passion or, or, or even obsession for, for it. And I think that feeds it. Do you feel, do you feel, do you feel that sort of, yeah, passion and, and yeah, for, for with, it? Without a doubt. I think one thing that I have found is I didn't know about any of these races. And the, mm. the deeper you go in, the more you find out. Um, so the likes of Labrador, the Iga Trail was another one. Um, and their registrations open in October, November, and then UTMB in December. And it all be all of these races just start appearing from nowhere. And they're, they're in amazing parts of the world as well. And yeah. I'm actually excited for the next couple of years for the races that I have planned to go and do. Um, I may not be competitive 
it's all relative obviously like um but you know i'm ex- yeah. i'm excited what the next 2 to 3 years have got on on offer well that's great i mean that sounds like genuine passion so that's you know yeah it's about exploring uh yeah exploring new mountains and new places and new parts of yourself i suppose is is kind of the cliche um yeah i mean that's what i love about the sport i, I still want to beat everybody though <laughs> I, I know i always go off my percentage finishing time like so and it's a strange thing because in, in ccc i actually thought i was last at one point um my intro points weren't very good so i think i started last uh-huh. and about 90k into the race 10k to go i kept on looking behind to see was there any head torches coming i was adamant i was last was trying to push on um but when i actually finished the race i was 930th i think out of 2100 it's a strange wow there you go yeah sometimes you're you think you're not performing well during the race but actually you're doing a lot better than you you think yeah and that's a good reminder definitely during utmb probably more than once i i've those last climbs at the end especially you think oh it's so slow it's so i'm so pathetic and this is all going wrong <laughs> and then you realize you haven't seen anyone for two hours so everyone else is traveling you know just like you are so you're doing you're doing just fine and it's a good reminder actually we can sometimes get sucked into this world can't we of thinking you know just yeah thinking too much about ourselves maybe during a race and, and how tough it all is and and actually you know often if you just to finish these races is, is quite an achievement it's a petty step it's a yeah I just have to I remind myself and sometimes I visualize kicking myself off that step. Get off. Because <laughs> sooner you can do it. You're on the petty step. Move on. So nice. 2018, yeah. there is there's a great moment in um, Chamonix when they bring up the top 10 up onto the stage. Um, so 2018, like you did put um, a lot of emphasis about you getting a top 10 or actually a top eight finish. Did you feel different going into that race? Was that added pressure or? I, I did a bit. Yeah. I, I, I realized I'd put sort of pressure on myself. I, I foolishly kind of, uh, well, my friends, Matt and Ellie from summit fever media decided they wanted to make a little film, you know, they cause we're friends. They, they've noticed my sort of obsession with the race and getting into the top 10. And they decided that was worth turning into a film, which, which is, um, now available online and it's called underdog um so that added some pressure um is that online is it actually online now? yeah oh you have to pay something it's only a few quid um but you can find it you can find it online um i'll send you send you a link afterwards if you like um and yeah i foolishly trailed running magazine asked if i would do a you know do a story about preparing for utmb so I, I suppose I f- maybe foolishly added that, you know, I was desperate to get in the top 10. So when I was walking around Chamonix, especially British runners and, and, and people would come up to me and say, good luck for top 10, um, <laughs> which was really lovely of them and really kind. I really appreciated it. But after a while, it was just this whole top 10, top 10, top 10 thing. And it was totally self, you know, self, um, it was all my fault. Um, but it did get to me a little bit. But I, I just had to remind myself, you know, it's a great place. You know, that's a great position to be in that, that yeah. there's a slight chance of it. And, and it was all my own doing. And I just had to relax and go and enjoy it. And, you know, if you don't, don't quite do as well as you hoped, it's, you know, no one's died. It's not the end of the world. It's, um, you know, really, you've got to go and enjoy it and, and hope good things come from that. But, but that enjoyment's got to come first, um, I think. Did you do anything different going into that race? Because you actually finished, for those who don't know, you finished fifth was was absolutely mind-blowing like um in the biggest trail race in the world really did you do anything different that sort of moved you from 12th the previous year to fifth um 
I'm looking for a yeah, shortcut. Yeah, I did train. <laughs> Sorry? We're looking for shortcuts here. Oh, well, yeah. I mean, I trained a bumblebee to sting Killian Jornet, who, who's allergic to, to bee stings, <laughs> yeah. which was which was quite helpful to me. You covered him in honey. He put a big patch yeah. of honey on his back at the start. <laughs> um, yeah, I did I did train a bit harder, uh, but it wasn't... Yeah, I did go out and recce the course that time. Obviously, I knew the course quite well, but it was just to condition my legs. So, so me and three friends, uh, including sort of Beth Pascal, who, who had a very good race, we ran it over three days, I think for about five weeks beforehand, which definitely, I think definitely did help. And actually, it helped me make peace with some parts of the course where you, in the race, especially towards the end, you think, oh, this bit's awful, this bit's horrible. But when I ran it in daylight with no pressure and, uh, you know, just a relaxing run with friends, it was actually like, this bit's lovely. And then so when it came around to the race, I wasn't dreading those bits so much. I was, I was, I wouldn't say looking forward to them, but, but you know. Positive association. Yeah, yeah. So that was helpful. And then I was lucky, I suppose I was lucky that, I had a family holiday in the Alps as well. And um, I would get up, yeah, I got up every morning for about seven or eight days at sort of five o'clock and I would go out and do three hours up and down, up and down some lumps. Um, so all that, you know, made for a pretty good training block and, and as well as getting out to the beacons regularly. So I think I just, I really, I just trained harder, you know, but mentally I, I suppose I wanted it more as well. So that during the race, um, when it got difficult, I, I still really wanted it. I wanted to do well. I wanted to keep moving well. Um, I was determined that what had happened to you the previous year wouldn't happen again. So I think again, a lot of it is that mental side of that mental side of it. Yeah, you must have been delighted though. Like when you you look at your competition, like your competition, the professional athletes, really good sponsorship. Um, some of them do actually go out a month beforehand and just rip the trails apart and really climatize to that. <clears throat> when you actually you've got a young family you're working um when you put all that together you know sometimes people just see the place but don't see the context and i suppose when you sit and look back at it now um you know it's it was such a real proud moment in your running career oh yeah i mean i think it was my probably my best my best kind of moment um and it was, yeah, it was incredible. Um, the support of people in Chamonix, I suppose mostly British people, but all the way down that last climb, sorry, that last sort of descent into Chamonix that you'll know yourself. Well, about three or four runners, not runners, but like people, just people just joined me for that run. I think they're all men and I, I don't, even, I didn't speak to any of them, so I don't even know what nationalities they were, but <laughs> they just ran down there with me as, I don't know, I don't know. It, it was just, it was a nice feeling. And then there were so many people lining that bit of route, lots of Brits, you know, high-fiving and, Oh, it was so good. And then I got into Chamonix and there just seemed to be even more crowds than normal. It was, it was an incredible feeling. Um, but then actually <laughs> quite near the finish, Nikki, Nikki Spinks, who had been crewing for me and, and some of the Innovate guys joined me for a little bit. Uh, and they said, oh, by the way, there might be someone just about a minute behind you. And I was like, oh, my God. <laughs> um, now, in a way, I still would have, you know, if it overtaken yeah. me, I'd be sick. It was hardly the end of the world. But it does feel like the end of the world at that point. And um, I tried to go faster. I just had nothing else left. Luckily, we got to a bit where you could sort of look behind you a little way, and I could see there was no one close enough that they would catch me. But that was a bit of a, yeah, a bit of a reminder, a bit of a, a bit of a shock. Um, and he finished four minutes behind me in the end, but but it was quite close. Um, but yeah, it was a wonderful, wonderful feeling. Um, and the filmmakers uh, in Underdog, I do, I do kind of over celebrate, which I'm maybe guilty of doing. <laughs> Guilty of doing it at UTMB, but they had told me, I, you know, because they were trying to make a good film of it, they told me I'd need to do something celebratory, you know, so I did just a, a quite a boring kind of fist, clench fists and, and shout. 
But yeah, I just thought I'll, I'll try and milk that moment because, you know, you never know. Uh, that could be as good as it ever gets. And, and you want to remember the moment, I think. So yeah, I was very grateful for so many people who were there. And people came up to me and said, oh, I've traveled from this far away and that far away to come and see you finish and things like that. And that's just, you know, that's just so, so wonderful. Um, and obviously you get a lot of lovely messages online. And yeah, I just feel very grateful that, that I get all that um all that goodwill from people it's it's wonderful yeah, it's the most amazing finish line in the world like I, I don't think it matters whether you're first or last um actually i was because of my fueling issues i was about two hours behind what i should have been mm. which worked out really well for me because i finished at half eight in the morning rather than half six <laughs> a couple of my mates actually finished you know about four or five hours before me um and they had nobody at the finish line where I, I, I had actually packed. And I think it's unique because the amount of people, it wouldn't matter if it's Killian Jornette or yourself or Courtney Dewar or any of those guys at all, you get your moment running down that finishing line. Yeah, and you get, yeah, it is incredible. And you get some, even that first year when I finished, again, it was quite a nice time. It was like half eight in the evening, I think. So quite a few people had had a few beers or they were eating uh eating out in a restaurant and they but they would stand up in the restaurant and applaud and things so I, you get this whole lap of and for those who don't know the last kilometer for the ccc and the utmb they take you like a kilometer loop around town yeah. like a victory almost a victory lap isn't it obviously well, by that stage you'd rather not do that extra distance but it means you get this like lap of honor which is just wonderful and yeah it is the people in the middle of the night who i feel sorry for you know maybe between 12 and sort of five or six in the morning there's not so many people around then but yeah, I would do what you've done and delay delay your finish a bit. You, I'm sure you did it on purpose. Yeah, definitely. So into 2019, then you, you sort of broke up your relationship slightly with UTMB. You decided not to go back. Um, you did go to the Iger Ultra Trail, which sort of interests me. How do you find that as a race? Yeah, that was um, that's a cracking race. Really, really beautiful. It starts under near near the Eiger. You can see the Eiger from the town. The the Grind the town's called Grindelwald, which I think pleases Harry Potter fans apparently. Um, and yeah, you you it starts early in the morning, maybe five. I can't remember, but um, yeah, you're climbing in the dark, and then as the sun comes up, you're up on the peaks. Yeah, it's 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 beautiful. Um, and there are some technical bits. There are some really good fast bits. Some beautiful bits. One really long climb. Bit of bit of altitude. I found it a little bit dizzying at one point, which was yeah my worst spell in the race. And also there's a cruel twist at the end. Again, if you look at the profile, it doesn't. There's a little bump at the end, but actually you pretty much climb another little mountain at, uh, right at the end. It, the, it looks like you're going straight towards the town. You can you can even hear the town, um, hear the finish line, and then it sends you off in the opposite direction to climb one more sort of small mountain which is quite cruel really but yeah yeah it's yeah I'd, I'd recommend that one it's it's a belter but again it sells out in minutes i think Go, going by um online anyway uh, sorry going by your achievements sort of list that you you've published online that was the longest race that you've done this year is there a reason why you, you didn't you sort of strayed away from the longer 100 mile plus races not really if i'm honest um I wanted to do, you know, I really want to do Western States or Hard Rock. I, I, th I do think 100 miles is probably what suits me the best at the moment, but I couldn't get into either of them. So I signed up for Ultra uh, ultra Trail, Ultra Tour. Yeah, Monte Rosa. I'm sorry, I forget which ones are called Ultra Trail and Ultra Tour, but I signed up for Monte Rosa, UTMR, which is absolutely magical. I, I was lucky to recce. I went out and recce the course, um, and it's tougher than UTMB. It's more technical. It's more climb. It's more beautiful than UTMB. Obviously, it's a bit of a newer race. It's Lizzie Hawker, the sort of legendary 
British runner who's just incredible, won UTMB five times. And this is where she used to train for UTMB. And yeah, I, I was very excited to do that race. Now, unfortunately, really bad weather came in and they, they had to stop the race. So we only did about 50 something miles. Luckily, I was in the front, so they gave me the, <laughs> they gave me the win. Right. Um, but it was, yeah, uh, at the time I didn't mind too much because, yeah, I'd got, I'd got the win without having to really... Um, destroy myself but i will definitely go back i want to do the full race and i really recommend if you you know for people who don't get into utmb uh really recommend it it's 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 yeah it's more beautiful it's only a week later it's yeah and a lot more remote feeling as well it's it's wonderful so you had an obsession with utmb there for four years trying to get into the top 10 phenomenal job getting into fifth place um what comes next like, have you already got your eyes on something that starts that obsession all over again? Because I'm sure you haven't let it drift. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I thought I'd give myself one year off and see see how much I missed it. Um, and yeah, I did. I did miss it quite a lot. So I am going to go back next year uh, <laughs> and do it again. Um, I think I think that will be my last time for for the me for the, for a while. But there's just a sense of I suppose I'm 44. You know, if I'm to be competitive there, that I haven't met, got many years left of being competitive there. So I just want to go back one more time. <laughs> Although I've got a feeling I'll be saying this again the next year. You but, sound like a, an addict. Like, so they're going to yes, have to open this up. Yes, last an, one. One, an a, one more hit. A meeting maybe for UTMB runners. <laughs> what, about yeah, your, I, what about your navigation skills? Like, have you thought about sharpening them up and putting an application into the Barclay? Because you sort of have the right uh, resume for that. I think definitely, yeah, the Barclay does have some appeal. At the moment, I love I love like racing other people over a longer distance. And the Barclay does feel like it's not not really a race against other people. Um, so I think in a few years, I'll be really keen to do Barclay. Yeah, when I've brushed up on my, na- my nav skills. <laughs> um, but right now, it doesn't appeal strongly enough. And I think for, for a race like that, you've got to really want to do it. Uh, I guess some, something like Tour de Gion has a lot of appeal. Um, but again, I, I feel like I want to do, you know, there are two, two, three, four hundreds I really want to do over the next couple of years. I'll, I'll do them. Then I'll move on a bit to maybe lo- slightly long distances. Like I think I will go back to the spine. I think I'll do Tour de Gion. Um, and then, and then maybe it's onto the Barclay and maybe more FKT type things. I've got one or two FK, FKT ideas, but they can be quite exhausting FKTs and I want to still be able to do, yeah, I suppose do some high profile hundred milers while I, while I can. So yeah, the great thing about our sport is there's lots of lots and lots of options, aren't there? It could be very difficult to get into some of the great Western state. Now, the podcast we're publishing this week is Will Haywood. He actually he applied twice and got into the great Western state twice. I don't know how that happened, but wow, <laughs> yeah. I think I've applied about five times. So he's he's luckier than me. Yeah. And you're talking about the rains there. We have an exceptional round over here called the Dennis Rankin Rains. Um, uh-huh. Not to plant any seeds, but it's a 54-mile course around about that 20,000 feet of climbing. But nobody has ever attempted the double Dennis Rankin Rains. So I'm just throwing that out there. <laughs> um, my tell, mo- tell that to Nicky Spinks. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, that would be the record just set for good. Um, <laughs> Damien, thanks very much. I really appreciate it. I really did steal your time there. I know it's almost two hours. The second half of that recorded really well. There was no interruption at all. Um, there was a bit of blipping at the beginning, but um, I'll better cut that out anyway. It'd be great. Um, yeah, one thing I would, I would say, like, 
I've done a little bit of research there this morning, obviously. I just printed off here. <laughs> it's only six months to Lavarado. I was actually training for the last one standing. Um, I've been doing loops of a football pitch. And just <laughs> just going through your page, I'm like, shit, I need to get off that pitch and get up those mountains. I'm never going to do Lavarado. Yeah, there are. I mean, there are some short. Yeah, ideally, you want to train on on terrain as similar. Well, I get try and get fit and a bit fast first, and then and then go for the more specific stuff cl closer to the race. You don't need to be going up down the mountains all year because that may actually slow you down. Um, but uh, there are some shortcuts. Like if you're doing, yeah, if you do try and do a bit of strength work, lifting some dumbbells, um, squats and lunges are going to give you stronger legs. But it, also the yeah weight vest weight vest hiking or even just hiking with a pack it is going to help you on the especially on the uphills and should increase a bit of leg strength um so there are some uh i don't know if shortcuts the right thing but there are some other things you can do as well um you, so your coaching then just to give you a little plug i'm sure after jasmine's sort of success even though she is a great athlete um you got quite a lot of interest in that um yes yeah i've got a, a few inquiries but it tends to be basically after the utmb uh places are settled i find people are approaching me because yeah they're in one of the one of those races tds ccc uh i got a bigger sort of inf influx of inquiries around then i mean i'm already almost at capacity with 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 clients i've got i've got about got about 20 and, and i don't like to take too many more than that i want to be able to do a good job for those people but um yeah i, lo I love doing that i love doing that uh, i love getting to know different people and their different motivations and their different uh strengths and weaknesses i suppose and, and working on them and um it's usually rewarding when when they do something that they haven't you know they weren't sure they could do um in terms of you know challenges um and that's yeah it's wonderful to be a part of those little those little adventures for people how, how would somebody get in touch with you if they were looking to be coached um oh i'm pretty sure i'm easy to find on sort of you know twitter and instagram and nearly always there's a link to my website so they could um email me through email me through um yeah, that way i'll put a few uh, links up in the show notes um well, thank but you. it's damien hall it's ultra demo is what i've been following um, yes i think on um i think on twitter or whatever i couldn't use my own name so i think it was i think it's ultra underscore demo or something or but i think if you just search for my name it's it comes up um i'm pretty sure i'm easy to find um or if not my website i think it's damienhall.info yeah i think it's easy to find damien that's excellent we're gonna wrap it up at that um and it's been fantastic having you on. Well, thanks ever so much. I've enjoyed our chat. And um, yeah, keep up the great work with the show. Yeah, appreciate that. What another awesome trail running podcast. Damien is such a down-to-earth guy, but an amazing athlete. I think it's mind-blowing that he came fifth in UTMB. What an absolute crazy achievement. We have a cracking lineup for you in January. I'm excited to be sharing some super inspiring stories. So why not do me a small favor in return and introduce the podcast to one friend to help pass it on. Hope you've enjoyed this episode. Until next week, stay safe and keep on moving. <laughs>